Good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. If you didn't catch it already, we are going to be walking through Psalm 104, 104 this morning. So if you can pull your Bible out, it will be just about the middle of the book there, or you can pull out a Bible app. Uh, you can type in Psalm. Psalm is spelled P-S-A-L-M, and you can find that uh, in the app there, and you can pull up the words. I would love for you to follow along because this Psalm is beautiful. You just need to spend some time to look at beauty. A few months ago, Leslie and I were in Kansas City and we visited the Nelson Atkins Art Museum. We'd never been to Kansas City. We didn't know what to expect of Kansas City. And frankly, we didn't expect much going to the art museum in Kansas City. But when we walked into the gallery, we were arrested by beauty. One of the first things we saw, we passed a statue of a man and a woman carved out of marble, and we couldn't help but stop and observe. We saw Greek busts and ancient columns. We saw the religious art of the Middle Ages. We saw the Flemish paintings. We saw Van Gogh. We saw painting after painting that either gave us joy in the observation or awe in the excellence. We just had to pause and observe the way it seemed there was actual light coming out of this painting or the depth of emotion on the face in this one whether angst or joy or sadness. And the more excellent and the more beautiful the art, the more joy there is, and the more we wonder about the artist, about the maker, the worker who put together this wonderful work. Who, who made this? Who painted this? What was in his mind? What were her circumstances? What methods were used how skilled must his hand be to make that brushstroke? Or how thoughtful must her mind be to think of that vantage point or that perspective? How patient and enduring are the hands that chisel and chip away at marble until only the beauty remains? This morning, we peek over the shoulder as a psalmist writes his experience walking into the greatest gallery of all. The psalmist observes nature, creation itself, from the small to the grand. He describes the best curation of beauty. And we will wonder at the worker. And if you catch it with your eye and see the work and the complexity and the beauty, there is only one fitting response. Praise. As though this psalm says, the wonder of his works compels us to praise the Lord. The wonder of his works compels us to praise the Lord. That is one way to express a theme of this morning. We always try to have a big idea in mind, and I don't always call it out, but I am this morning, because I think another one could be equally fitting. Wow, God is great. Or maybe, maybe another one, the result of a hike or a good road trip should be exclaiming the greatness of God. That's what Psalm 104 is talking about. The psalm is written in response to the art gallery, and the gallery is all of creation. And my concern this morning, my hesitation, is that I would do what any academic essay explaining art has the danger of doing. I can give you an analysis and neglect to show you the beauty. I'm fearful that I could maybe write a sermon or... Proclaim a sermon like a sophomore writes an essay for his art class, right? 
and fail to show you the actual art. You can just picture it. The sophomore writing about the Mona Lisa and never actually putting the Mona Lisa on the page. Well, you see, if you look at it, she's got this, this it's kind of like a smile, but it's kind of not like a smile, and it's enigmatic, and we're not really sure, and she's kind of looking at you. No, just show her the painting. <laughs> show the painting. So rather than analysis verse by verse, which is what we usually do, I want to give us a frame and let a lot of this psalm speak for itself because it is beautiful. And I don't know if the psalmist went on that long hike we talked about or sat in the wilderness and just pondered, but that seems to be the starting point for this psalm. That seems to be what he did. He observes the magnitude and the majesty, the complexity and the provision of the created world all around us. And his conclusion is that the maker is very great. The maker is very good. So we must praise him. Let's read again from Psalm 104. This is starting in verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers, winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Where our focus the last several weeks has been on the Redeemer King or the Just King, this morning it is all about the Creator King. And the first and last response to Him for us and for this psalm is that our soul should bless the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, because the Lord is great, because He is magnificent. And how is that seen? The astounding pictures of the skies and the diffusion of light are the clothing of God. The majesty of the creation and expanse of the horizon is the clothing of the Lord. God created all and it is his servant. So when we observe and see striking beauty, the natural progression is to turn our eyes to the maker. And here the psalmist looks to the heavens. I'm not sure what the view was, perhaps the vantage point was of a high hill and see the rising sun piercing through the fog. Or maybe with a vantage point like the big sky country in Montana where the horizon just seems bigger out there. Or better again, out away from the city under the night sky with nothing but the stars to light through the darkness. This is all a means of attributing majesty to God. God is more splendid, more majestic than all. In fact, the most majestic thing you can see, the magnitude of the horizon, is his clothing. That's the poetry used here. God does not have a body to wear clothing, but this comparative language explodes our imagination to begin to observe the majesty and splendor of God. And the wonder moves from splendor to the amazing organization and craftsmanship of the Maker. 
The clouds over here, the winds over there, the earth on its foundations, the obvious massive amounts of water that stand above the mountains and come down as rain. This is the psalmist, just like an observer walking in, appreciating architecture. When you walk into a well-crafted home or a marvelous building, you just have to pause, wow, how did they get that beam up there? The arch of that stone is magnificent. Oh, see how he brought the corner of the room together and incorporated that column. Look how the ceiling is held up and allows for this big open space. You have this feeling when you walk through old churches or well-thought-out libraries. Your eyes are drawn to the building and the building directs you to a specific task, reading and learning in a library, worship and awe in a church. I think this is a compelling reason to go on a road trip. Drive through the national forests and see the bigness of creation. We recently drove to Denver and back, and we took the route through the Yellowstone National Park and then drove along the Tetons, and it was majestic. The sun was setting as we were heading toward Jackson, Wyoming, and the way the Grand Range terminated into the massive lake was just unbelievable. And the more we drove, the bigger it all looked, and we just felt smaller and smaller and smaller, and I thought, he laid the foundations of the world. Wow. The very architecture of the world draws you to the architect. The very mountains pull your gaze to the heavens. And even in all this greatness, the greatness of the created world moves at the command of God. In verse 7 it says, At your rebuke they fled. God's voice is at work in the ordering of creation. Creation listens to him. And boundaries are set because he speaks it so. The oceans are bound where they are because God spoke. Even the possible allusion here to the flood covering the earth, the waters are pushed back at his command so they don't cover anymore. Mountains rise, valleys sank because of his appointment. It is worth reminding ourselves here for a moment that the creation is wonderful, the cosmos is magnificent. God created it and is distinct from it. God is not in creation as though if we look hard enough we will see him. Creation is God's craftsmanship. The painting is not the painter, but we see his work in the painting, right? God is distinct and in command of nature, and thus the reason the beauty of nature is so compelling. In our context, I think we're tempted to fall into two different ditches on the side of the road. We either glory in creation as a thing in and of itself, as though it should be the thing that is praised, but don't do that. Praise the maker. And on the other side is to look on creation with dead eyes. To say it is just a mechanism. And that is all there is. A soulless world devoid of any fingerprints of a maker. Just a happenstance coming together of physics and laws. This is all there is, but there is no enchantment here. There is nothing that touches your soul because there is no soul. That is a ditch to reject as well. There is most assuredly organization and laws and beauty in the recordable order, but it is not a silent machine. 
And I think one of the best ways to avoid both of these ditches is to sit in creation. I think that would be a lovely response to this psalm. Go on a little hike. Sit there and observe. Drive into the country with your windows down and smell the trees and hear the birds. Stop and pause and be quiet for five minutes. Don't rush through the gallery, but let the art arrest you. It will point you to a maker. And I think that is likely how this psalm came about, a writer sitting, observing, thinking, enjoying, and then responding. Wow, God is great. Nature does that to us. My family, we have been trying to take some walks through the parks recently, and there's lots of forests around here, so you can do that. And my family was walking around the park this week, and one of my boys, whenever he would go out ahead of us on the trail, and whenever he found something interesting, a rock or a shell or a bird or whatever, he would yell from up the path, I found nature. Go find nature. And see if you are not more inclined to bless God. Look for the paint strokes. God is great. God is good. The psalmist keeps describing what he sees. And in the next four verses, he points out that God providentially brings the water to the right places in the right way so that animals and birds and the whole earth are satisfied. Let me read that. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Isn't that lovely? I don't expect you to write Psalm 104 a sequel, but I think sitting by a creek would do you good. Go stand along a river, Spend some time next to a waterfall and give yourself an opportunity to be moved. And where the psalmist speaks of water satisfying the earth, he continues to talk about other sustenance and habitats. In verse 14, he says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The storecasts are home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the grass to grow. Maybe you're saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. Grass. I have a lawn. Not a big deal. Really? Let's focus. Let's go to the micro here for a moment. If you are mowing your lawn and you limit yourself to that, maybe you are unimpressed. It's just a task anyway. But sit in your lawn for a moment. Get down and look at the blade of grass, the structure and the color, needing the sun and the water and the soil and the temperature at the right combination for it to grow that way in your lawn. Okay, that's kind of cool. And then go on a road trip out of the suburbs, through the country where fields upon fields upon fields are covered in acres and acres and acres of grass so that livestock can eat bite after bite after bite until they are satisfied. And if you know anything about cows, you know they eat a lot of grass. 
and then ponder the amount of livestock, not just in our county, a few, or state, a lot, but the globe, astounding. All of history, unfathomable. And they have all been fed by grass, boring, mow-my-lawn grass. It's amazing that that stuff grows so consistently, so dependably. What a creative gift of God. And God gave us stuff better than grass. Plants to cultivate, right? In his creativity, he gave us plants that if we participate in creation, we get to grow wonderful things that don't just give us sustenance. They contribute to our happiness. How wonderful is it to go to the garden and pick fresh parsley and dice it up and add it to a dish? Or grabbing that ripe red tomato on a hot summer day when it finally reached perfection? God has made creation organized in such a way that when we cultivate it, it yields rewards. Your food does not come from the grocery store. It comes from the cultivated ground. And that ground and those plants were caused by the maker. God is great. God is good. Verse 14 and 15 says that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. And here is something I find particularly comforting. God is not just the provider of sustenance. He is a provider of joy. God could have provided a plant that gave you all of your macros and we could have called it a day. Just the right amount of fat, just the right amount of carbs, just the right amount of protein, and a multivitamin. Soylent. He could have given us mere sustenance, but he gives us feasting. He is not just after your stomachs, he is after your hearts. If you crush a grape and put it in a container, the natural yeast that is on the grape will ferment it and create wine. Isn't that amazing? That is a gift. Because God does not just want to make sure your blood sugar is at the appropriate level. He designed this world to be enjoyed. He provides for your delight. Now some of you are getting a little nervous. And we could talk about how we abuse gifts, and that would be fitting the fruit of the vine and food, and we do abuse those gifts. But for now, just ponder the giver. He did not need to add delight to the menu, but he did. And oil, oil to make his face shine. What, what? All the guys are going, I have no idea, and the ladies are like, I get it. <laughs> Beauty may not be a practical necessity, but it is a gift. Why do we desire our faces to shine? Why do we desire our hair to be organized well and our appearances to be radiant? Because God put the desire for beauty in us and gave us oil for our faces to help. My wife recently got this oil, Jojoba oil. Do I know what Jojoba is? No idea. But does it make her face shine? Yes, it does. And does it feel really good on a shaved head? Yes, it does. And just like sustenance compared to the feast, God gives us an avenue for beauty, not because we need it for our bodies to keep breathing, but because it is a good on its own. 
And if you observe, you can see it. Beauty is a gift that God added to creation, and our hearts long for beauty. It is natural and good. You ladies recognize this longing more naturally, and you search for it. And guys, it's not just for the ladies. I'm not talking just about pretty pink ribbons and girl stuff. We have allowed beauty for some reason to be relegated to half of humanity. It's for all of us. And guys, beauty, beauty is the light filtering through the pines and touching the bubbling river on the early morning fishing trip. Beauty is the dew on the ground of the first fairway. Beauty is seen in the inviting mountains piercing the horizon or the wonderfully designed lines of your favorite car. Beauty is your child in your hands for the first time. And your bride walking down the aisle in radiance. That's beauty. You all long for it. I have a picture of my boys at a recent wedding. The bride and groom were walking around greeting the guests as they do, and my boys were following the bride around. And they stopped for a moment, and the boys sat almost on her dress, all three of them, just looking up at her in awe, marveling. She looks like Cinderella. That is created in us. And this world is not just function. It is not simply practical and useful. It is beautiful. And God gives us a longing not just for the good and the true, but for the beautiful as well. God is great. God is good. And the psalmist turns his eyes to the sky. In verse 19, he says, He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their den. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Again, this is probably a call to go camping. Wake and live and cook and eat under the rhythms of the sun and the moon and you will be reminded that God created rhythms of time for our good. There is a lot of good and value in technology but one of the dangers it presents is it takes us away from the natural sequences of the day. We don't sleep when the sun goes down because we have lights we can turn on. We keep ourselves up with artificial lights of our screens and then work to curtain the sun because it came too early. We walk from condition house to condition car to condition work and then all the way back again and never feel the heat of the sun or the brisk chill of the night. But they are still there and they beckon to the maker. This is less about God causing the moon and the sun to exist, though he did, but that he gave them a purpose for creating rhythms to the day. There is a daytime there is a nighttime, and they are for different things. In the night, the animals of the dark creep about. The young lions roar for their, for their prey, and then the sun rises and they all steal away. And the daytime is where man does his work, and he labors until evening. And here there is even an implicit rest. God gave the dance of the day and the night so that the vast complex of the animal kingdom can seek their own sustenance and also so you have work and rest, work and rest. There's a rhythm there. God is great. 
God is good. And then the song sings to describe the vast multitude of creatures and the fact that God cares for them. And in his hand is life for them. And I want to frame this and just let you observe it as I read it. The psalmist will describe the great magnitude of creatures in the sea, the classical place of danger and mystery and uncertainty. But even there, even a great scary creature like Leviathan is formed for play. God is so big that the magnitude of all creatures, their sustenance and their life and death is all under the provision and care of him. The big and wild things that present to us as mystery and mighty all come to his hands. Even the things we view as dangerous are under God's control. This is in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God is not an absent landlord of creation. He is intimately involved. He is good, and he is great. So throughout this psalm, the psalmist has pondered the vastness of all creation, in all its beauty, its complexity, its magnitude, its wonder, its order and provision. And now the psalm will conclude where it began with our response. He says in verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. After observing and describing and wondering and delighting in creation for 30 verses, the psalmist comes back to the maker. Wow, God is great. How did he do those brushstrokes? Ah, the patience to carve the statues and how to make the vantage point of that painting, to etch the mountains and shape the seas, to create innumerable creatures and give them life and space and water and food, to make humans and sustain them and put delight in their hearts and in their hands. God is great and God is good. And he says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. We have an exceedingly great maker a glorious artist, a joyful creator, an involved provider in control of the earth and the mountains. And how do we respond to such a maker? He says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. As long as I am, I will praise the maker, right? 
Yes, this is a fitting and proper response. Once you allow yourselves to see the magnitude of everything outside those windows, it is only reasonable to attribute glory to the maker of the mountains, the architect of the valleys, and the painter of the skies. This is only fitting. He is the maker. He made all the gloriousness around you, from the smallest, smallest intricacies to the vast complexities, filling it with provision and beauty and joy. Even the dangerous and unknown places of the vast earth are but the play areas for his creativity. What else can capture the magnitude and majesty and splendor of the creator but the greatest gallery of all? And you have your being because he made it so. You are because he is. So as long as you have your being, what other fitting response is there but to praise him, to attribute blessing to him, to say he is good and he is great? And the psalmist writes this down and knows his potential response may not be fitting, so his praising turns to request, may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. May the way I ponder him, may the thing I put in my mind to dwell on be something pleasing to him, to the maker. This is a good prayer. I want my mind and its pondering to be fitting for my relationship with the creator. No other relationship supersedes this one. So I want my mind and my meditation and my thoughts to be pleasing to him. What does your heart meditate on? What does your mind dwell upon? On something less worthy? On something unworthy? God may use that time next to the creek to guide your meditation toward him. And as he was requesting the psalmist, it takes a sudden turn. Verse 35 says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Does this seem abrupt to you? Does this seem odd to you? I would posit that this is exactly the right response because if, no, no, when, when you go on that hike and you sit in the mountains or the streams or by the creek and you see creation and wonder at the brushstrokes and the craft and the care, your heart will be stirred toward God the maker. And there in the quietness, you will remember that good creation is broken, bent by humanity. Humans are sinners, a rebellious lot against the creator God. There is still wickedness in the world and when you glory in the goodness of the world, you will be reminded that it is still broken. There is still wickedness and the restoration of all things has not yet occurred. When you give yourself an opportunity to glory in God the creator, in his creation, you will long for the redemption. You will long for sin to be removed removed from the world and removed from your own heart. You want the wicked to be no more because wickedness was not a part of the original design. It is a blemish on the painting, a scar on the sculpture, a crack in the carving. And observing the beauty of God's creation will give you a longing for him to make it all good again, completely, 
No more sin, no more wickedness. This will be the cry of your heart when you see the work of the Creator. Friends, God is a good Creator. He made a good creation. He wants us to be enjoyers and cultivators of that creation. And He watched us bring brokenness, bring sin, contribute wickedness into the creation. But God, God is a redemptive Creator. The God who rebuked the boundaries of the water is the God who came into his creation. Jesus is God who rebuked the waves and calmed the storm. The Lord whose works have you longing for the eradication of sin is Jesus who came to rescue you and eradicate sin from your heart and eventually from all creation. Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus came to remedy sinners and he came to restore all creation. And the plan, the grand plan is Jesus reigning over an unblemished earth. You think it is good now. We are seeing the intro to the symphony. We have not yet seen the crescendo. Revelation 21 raises the volume this way. John the writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, the place of chaos and fear, no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. There's beauty. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Heaven and earth will be together again, no longer separate. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The same creator king who created a longing for justice and redemption when we observe his creation has provided it. And he will bring restoration. He will make all things new. Amen. Amen. 